All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we just thank you, God, uh, for this um, Sunday. We thank you uh, for this day of rest. Um, we thank you for uh, another Father's Day. Um, I pray, God, that you would just bless all the fathers across the world um, and that you would just um, give them strength and perseverance, God, to be the fathers that you want them to be. Um, I pray you especially be with believing fathers and that you would just give them the perseverance and the, um, the filling of your spirit that it takes to um, uh, raise kids in the Lord and that they would um, uh, just uh, disciple their children, that they would catechize their children, that they would set a godly example for their children, that they would lead their children and they'd be the head of the household. <clears throat> I pray that everyone uh, in this, uh, every father in this church would just be blessed today um, uh, through the teaching and the sermon and worshiping you, Lord God. And I just... Uh, Thank you so much for this time to go over your church. I pray that it would be a blessed time and that we'd all be edified through it. We thank you so much, God, for all you give us. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. <clears throat> okay, session three. <clears throat> so the reason there's two handouts, okay, as promised last week, one is an appendix, okay, to last session. If you look at that, I actually got through most of what I wanted to get through last week, but there are just a couple of the points that I wanted to talk about. You'll see some of them are pretty short paragraphs. I didn't have a ton to say, but I just wanted to at least hit them. Uh, some things like, how does the um, church history uh, connect with the gospel? How does it connect uh, to our practical lives? So on and so forth. Um, you know, those are all really important things. Um, the handout we're going to mostly focus on today, okay, is the one that says session three, okay, part three. Um, if you are going to be a regular at the class, I would ask if you could just go through that appendix really quick some point in the week. I think it'll help you um, as we go through the class. One thing I will briefly touch on from the appendix, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, um, is the part that it says the vastness of church history, okay? Church history, there's just a lot there. There's so much that we could go over. I could break up each of these periods of church history and we could do just a whole series on that. Or we could focus on just St. Augustine or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Martin Luther or, you know, some of these uh, heroes of the faith. Uh, today we're going to go over Perpetua. Any of these people I could spend, you know, four or five sessions on alone. So just bear in mind, if it seems like I'm going through some of these movements or some of these really important events in church history or these really important people, these heroes, if it seems like I'm going through them fairly quickly, uh, bear with me. That's the reason why. I only have, you know, so much time in seven sessions to get through stuff. So I know some of you are going to be like, he only spent 10 minutes on so-and-so? Like, that's wrong. And yeah, it is kind of wrong, okay? But I, again, if, if, I, if I spent too much time on all the great heroes of the faith, uh, it, we'd never get through the class, okay? Um, some, some heroes of the faith I might not even touch on at all. And I know some people will be like, I can't believe he didn't even, like, mention that person. Again, it's just because there's so many great people in 2,000 years of Christian history that we could go on. I can't hit on everybody, okay? So some things are just going to have to be kind of quickly summarized. Um, okay, so but with that, let's go ahead and dive into session three. Um, part three <clears throat> is the ancient church. Um, before I dive into that, I kind of want to go over how I break up church history. Because church history is 2,000 years long, all right? It's only natural that we're going to break it up into sub-eras, and each of those eras can be broken up into further uh, sub-eras, okay? So for right now, though, let me kind of go over how I break up church history. Um, some Christian theologians and historians break up church history a little bit differently, so you might see on a, a particular study uh, it broken down differently, and that's okay. This is just sort of, oh, you're good. This is just sort of like my personal uh, breakdown, okay? All right, so I break it down into five eras, and the first would be ancient church, And this is roughly from about 0 to 500 A.D. 
And I say roughly because, again, it's not like, you know, in 500 AD on January 1st, the church woke up and was like, hey, we're in a new church era. Okay, that's not how history works. Okay, but again, roughly, all right, you know, where we kind of look back and in hindsight, we can see there's kind of a real transition to a new uh, and different age. All right. Uh, The second one would be the Middle Ages. Sometimes called the Dark Ages. That's not the best term, probably, but there's some accuracy to that. I prefer just the the traditional Middle Ages. 500 to 1500 A.D. Okay, the third would be the Reformation era. Just 1500 to 1600 A.D. Now, you might say, why is one era a thousand years and one is only a hundred years, okay? Again, there just tends to be certain characteristics, okay, that marked this age, even regardless of how long it was, and there were certain very clear characteristics that marked this age, even though it tends to be shorter, okay? Plus, a lot happened during the Reformation era, and you might say, well, you're just biased because you're very Protestant. Not really. Even Catholic historians, okay, will talk a lot about this 100 years as being extremely cataclysmic, extremely important. Even from a Catholic perspective, they would call it the Counter-Reformation era, but they would recognize that just from a purely historical perspective, a ton happened during this 100-year time frame, okay? Uh, The next one would be the modern era. 1600, okay, to about 2000 AD. And then finally, the postmodern era. Two thousand AD to the present. A lot of these overlap with sort of secular history to some extent. All right, Uh, Middle Ages is not just a a church age. Okay, um, modern era refers to oftentimes in secular history to broader than the church, but there is a sense in which we can talk about the church within the modern era or the church within the postmodern era. Okay, all right. Um, when we get towards the end of the class, you'll see, okay, in, in a lot of ways we live in an exciting time. Okay, we are at the beginning of kind of a real shift in history, broadly speaking, and a real shift in church history as well. Okay. Uh, the sort of philosophy of the day has really kind of transitioned, not just in America, but throughout the Western world and to some extent throughout the world in general, okay? And in some ways, that's a scary thing because it, in, in many ways it threatens the church. In other ways, it's, you know, it's, it's all in God's hands. It's all in God's providence. It's exciting to be kind of part of a, of a new era, okay? All right, but for today, we're going to go over the ancient church, okay? Zero to um, 500 AD. <clears throat> if you kind of skip ahead a little bit, my goal is to get through um, the pre-Nicene era, okay? You can split up the ancient church into a number of different sub-eras. Um, I'm probably not going to get to the post-Nicene era, but I did put that on the handout so at least you guys have an idea of how the ancient church is sort of broken up, okay? All right, so the ancient church era can be broken up into a number of sub-eras. The first one would be the time of Christ, Okay. 0 to 33 A.D. Now, technically speaking, does anyone know why that's not entirely accurate? Why why 0 A.D. is not 100% right on? Okay, yeah, but but even the time of Christ, okay, we don't know exactly when he was born, okay? Constantine sort of guessed at that when he wanted to do a Christian calendar, all right, and we now know that that's probably an inaccurate date, okay? He was probably born around sometime around 3 B.C., 
A lot of people will be like, wait, Jesus was born three years before he was born? No, he was born three years before we thought he was born, okay? But we weren't going to go back and change 2,000 years, okay, of Western uh, calendars, okay? It is what it is, all right? So he's probably born somewhere around 3 uh, uh, to 7 B.C., all right, but we put zero because that's kind of the traditional calendar, and it's pretty close, okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this period. Obviously, most of you guys know the basic storyline here, okay, from the Gospels, and I already went over um, sort of an overview of the um, life of Christ, especially focusing on his suffering, okay? But that would sort of be the first sort of era of sort of kind of church history. But you make an excellent point. There's a sense in which a lot of times people talk about the start of the church at Pentecost, because, I mean, there is a sense in which the New Covenant, New Testament church started at uh, Pentecost. But there also is a sense, okay, as Reformed Christians, where we would look at church, the church going even before that, okay? But obviously, for the purposes of this class, we're mostly talking about the New Covenant, the New Testament uh, uh, church, okay? All right, the next one would be the Apostolic Era. I'm not going to say a ton about this one, because also most of this, or I shouldn't say most, but a lot of this is covered, okay, in the Bible itself, okay, with the book of Acts, all right, and most people are fairly familiar, okay, with some of the big events like the um, uh, conquering of Jerusalem, the d destruction of the temple in AD 70 uh, by the Romans, okay, and then just write this down, this is a period when the apostles are spreading the gospel, okay, throughout the known world, all right, um, it's going to be weird for me to not have a map. When I was a teacher, I bust down the map. Okay, I don't have that here, but I'll just most hopefully most of you guys have some basic um, ideas of geography. Right now, the main places where the gospel is spreading from about the time of uh, the death of Christ to about 100 AD, okay, would be North Africa, what is today the Middle East, and today the southern portions of Western and Eastern Europe. Okay. Christianity is hardly dominant at this point, okay? It is not the major religion of the Roman Empire. It's not even one of the major religions. But it is growing very, very fast, okay? Against all odds, all right? And as most of you guys know, who is the main sort of catalyst uh, for this spread? Paul, okay? The Apostle Paul, all right? All the apostles spread the gospel, but Paul is definitely sort of at the helm, all right? <clears throat> One other thing I want to say quickly, okay, before we really dive into the good stuff, okay, just sort of whenever you teach history, all right, it can be confusing to people because sometimes people want you to go in a very kind of strict chronological order, okay, and that makes a lot of sense, and I'm going to try to be as chrono chronological as possible, all right, but that's not always as easy as you would think, okay. For example, when I get to the Reformation, okay, who am I going to start with? Martin Luther, very good, okay, so you go Martin Luther, all right, and then after that, okay, you probably go Zwingli or Tyndale, all right? However, okay, those people overlap. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to just like do a few things on Luther and then we're going to go to Zwingli and then we're going to go to Calvin and then we're going to come back to Luther. Does that make sense? It gets very confusing. It's not a good way to teach history. So for the most part, I'm just going to teach Martin Luther and then we'll come back to Zwingli, but you'll notice that there's some overlap, okay? Also, sometimes I won't teach something that goes in a certain era because the consequences of that thing really more apply to the next era. So for example, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on monasticism in the ancient church, even though monasticism was started in the ancient church period. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to go over monasticism more when we go over the Middle Ages, all right, and I'll kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about how it started with St. Anthony and kind of built, but then we'll talk about the major impact that it had, okay, during the Middle Ages, all right? So those are just some caveats kind of how um, I'll teach a little bit, okay? All right, so um, the apostolic era goes to about 100 AD. And the reason we say that is because um, most church historians believe that who died somewhere around this period of time? 
John, okay, as the final apostle. Now, that's not super definitive. It's not like every church historian or Christian theologian agrees on that. You have some who believe that he wrote the book of Revelation as early as what? Does anybody know? Yeah, okay, that's it's a big debate within the church, and it actually has huge consequences for how you look at the book of Revelation, okay? It's not a debate I'm going to get super into uh, in this class, but just be aware of it. Some would say that uh, John wrote it before 70 AD, okay, and probably did not live much longer after that, all right? Some would take the more traditional position that he wrote around 90 AD, and that he died somewhere around 100 AD, okay? Either way, however you look at this, by the time we get to 100 AD, there's a clear shift, there are no more apostles, all right? Um, the, all the books of the Bible have been written. In that sense, the canon is closed, all right? When we speak of the closing of the canon, okay, we're actually referring to two kind of different things, all right? You can, sometimes you're talking about one thing, sometimes you're talking about another. In one sense, the closing of the canon refers to the fact that all the books of the Bible have been written, they've been completed, all right? And that took place, okay, in the first century. In another sense, there is a sense in which where the church finally sort of um, uh, figured out all the books of the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay, and that took place more around sort of 350-ish AD, okay? Now, that can be a very confusing <clears throat> to a lot of people, and they're like, well, so the church didn't have the Bible? Well, the church was just clueless? No, the church had like 80% of the Bible pretty much figured out, but there was like 20% where there was debate. Does that make sense? Okay, there was books of the Bible that not every Christian was convinced belonged in the biblical canon, and there was books uh, that people thought should be included in the canon that most Christians today would not include. Does that make sense? Okay, so those are sort of two kind of different questions, all right? So we'll talk about the closing of the canon sort of within the church later on, but just know that right now, all the books of the Bible have been written and completed um, and are available to all of the, the churches, okay? All right, so the apostolic era is from about 33 to 100 AD. Uh, let's go into the pre-Nicene era. That's where I'm going to spend most of my time. Pre-Nicene era is about 100 to 300 AD-ish, okay? <clears throat> and a lot takes place in this period of time. First thing that we're going to go over, kind of ties in with the major theme of the class, okay, is intense Roman persecution. All right, why did the Romans have such a problem with Christianity? I mean, just I'm not even trying to make us sound better than we are. Obviously, I'm very upfront about the fact that I'm pretty biased. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for about 20 years. Okay, but even that aside, most Christians in the early Roman Empire, even by the most atheistic sort of anti-Christian historian standards, were pretty good what? Citizens, okay? They, for the most part, obeyed the laws. They mostly wanted to stick to themselves. One of the most popular passages in the early church, okay, for good reason, because they were a lot of times hunted down, but even I think it goes beyond that, okay, was where Paul talks about seek to live a peaceful and quiet life, okay? For the most part, they wanted to live in their village, okay? Sure, they wanted to share their faith. They wanted to do what God called them to do, but for the most part, they kind of just wanted to live, okay, worship Christ and wait for his what? Return, okay? That was pretty much how most Christians wanted to live. They weren't looking to rock the boat and make people angry and irritate people, okay? They were pretty good citizens, okay? So why did the Roman Empire just absolutely grow to detest uh, the Christian church, okay? Anybody who kind of knows? Yeah? Very good. Excellent, okay? To understand the ancient world, and this wasn't just true of the Roman Empire, okay, I understand it's a very difficult concept, okay, for modern day Americans, especially if you don't have a lot of background in history, okay, where freedom of religion is just something we are born into. It is like drilled into us from by our parents, our grandparents, our schools, TV, culture, okay, to us, 
To deny freedom of religion seems crazy, but we don't realize what a radical concept that was, okay, in kind of the late 1600s, early 1700s with the Enlightenment. Um, before that, almost write this down, no culture believed in freedom of religion, okay? That was just a very foreign concept. Most cultures believed that the government, politics, and religion had to go together. That if you tried to separate them, you would have absolute chaos in your society. Does that make sense? Okay. And what's really crazy about the Roman Empire is as far as most ancient cultures go, they were pretty tolerant when it came to religion. Believe it or not. Okay. They really were. As long as you were basically of the basic religious worldview, okay, of what? Would you pretty much be left, okay, uh, left alone and you'd be okay and you'd be protected? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very good. What's another kind of term? Polytheism. As long as you're a polytheist, you're good. And when they would take over a new culture, okay, one of the things that uh, a lot of people were very surprised at, okay, it's never fun to be conquered, and people didn't like to be conquered, and people oftentimes resent the Roman Empire for a while. But one of the things that the Roman Empire would do to really sort of try to win over a culture is they would, as much as possible, leave that culture in place. They'd say, you can still have your, your, your language, your food, your clothes. Yeah, you got to send us some soldiers. you got to pay your taxes, okay? And you can still have your religion. And it wasn't that big a deal because most people in North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe were already what? Polytheist, okay, through and through. And they said, just adopt some of our Greek gods, adopt some of our Roman gods. We'll even worship some of your gods, and it's all good. Does that make sense? Because in polytheism, all right, there was this belief that there was how many gods? An almost infinite amount, and that nobody had discovered all of them. So when you found new gods, far from that seen as a threat to your religion, that was oftentimes seen as cool, all right, we've even discovered more new gods. This group has these gods, and they control this stuff, okay? And so now we can tap into them, and, you know, if we help this culture, those gods will be good to us. Do you guys see kind of that line of thinking, all right? As long as you were basically polytheist, the Roman Empire tended to be pretty okay with you, okay? The reason they could not stand Judaism and Christianity, okay, is because Christianity was monotheist, okay? And not only did that deny all of polytheism, okay, but as was said earlier, one of the gods, okay, was Caesar. Now, at different points of the Roman Empire, they had different views on that. Sometimes it was, he was sort of godlike. Other times he was sort of like kind of a human-esque god. Other times he was full-on like god bow down worship, okay? But he was always considered a god in some sense of the word. Does that make sense? Okay. And not only were you denying polytheism in general, if you were a Jew or a Christian, but you were also saying Caesar is not a god. Caesar is not Lord. And that's where, okay, the line was sort of drawn. Does that make sense? And the Roman Empire saw that, as bizarre as it might seem to us today, as not just sort of a threat, not kind of a threat, not an irritation, but as an absolute threat to the fabric of society, okay? It was really, people believe this. I know to us where polytheism is just not very common in, in our culture today, they saw that if you reject the gods, you're going to make the gods what? Angry. And if you make the gods angry, what happens? Bad things happen to us, the Roman Empire, okay? The Roman Empire was obsessed, okay, with this phrase called the Pax Romana. Does anyone know what that means? Peace of Rome, okay? They were obsessed with it. You have to keep the peace of Rome. And that's why they were okay with the Roman soldiers being so brutal. In the Roman Empire, there was no distinction between uh, military and police, okay? The Roman soldiers were both, and make sure you understand that. They, okay, went and fought the wars, but they also enforced the law, all right? And they did it very brutally, and the Roman Empire was okay with this because they thought if you put fear into people, it's going to help the Pax Romana. And to be honest, I'm not saying I'm condoning the Roman soldiers and the way they did things, but to a lot of extent, it worked. 
Okay, it kept people in line. Okay, people could travel on Roman roads oftentimes and be very, very safe. Okay, because again, if you attack somebody or you were uh, uh, um, you were convicted of robbing somebody or something like that, okay, consequences could be severe. All right, if you attack someone who's a Roman citizen or a noble, someone of high birth, even if you didn't know, okay, what would happen to you? And what kind of death? Okay, crucifixion. And we talked about that. Really not fun. Okay, so to some extent. This kind of philosophy worked for the Romans, all right? And again, to take religion out of the picture was unthinkable, okay? It was going to destroy or at least threaten the Pax Romana. Yes? Exactly. Being a Roman citizen was huge. And it's not like in America where, okay, if you're born in America, you're a Roman citizen, or American citizen. You can earn your citizenship. Very few people, okay, were Roman citizens back in the ancient world. It was a very select few, and they had a lot of rights and a lot of power. Yes, exactly. Okay, so you didn't want to risk attacking somebody and, whoops, find out they're a Roman citizen. You're in big trouble, okay? All right, so um, the Roman Empire saw both Judaism and Christianity as major time threats. However, the Roman Empire thought, saw Christianity as infinitely worse, infinitely more threatening. As much as they didn't like Judaism, and they eventually conquered Judaism, okay, we'll, we'll kind of backtrack and talk about that. But why did they see Christianity as so much more dangerous? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Exactly. Okay. Jews did send out missionaries. They did send out people to, to preach, okay, the word of God, but it was very, very limited, okay? Uh, tended to be people highly educated. Remember when Jesus talks about you send, you know, to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you send out people, okay, uh, uh, you know, far and wide, okay, to bring back comforts and you make them twice as much a son of hell. Okay, they did send out people, but it was pretty rare. And even when somebody was converted outside of Israel, okay, they really wanted you to come back to Israel or get as close to Israel as possible, okay? Like go back to like somewhere where there was heavily Jewish populations like Alexandria or something like that, okay? They really were not trying to overly spread the religion that much, okay? So the Roman Empire felt they can sort of kind of work with the Jews. And even then, it wasn't a pretty picture, okay? They really ruled over the, the Israel with an iron fist. You can read in the New Testament, there were centurions all over the place, okay? Uh, if the Jews tried to revolt, uh, the Roman Empire would bring down the hammer pretty badly, okay? So it was not like a perfect situation for the Jews at all. But because they mostly kept to themselves, and if you get a chance to go look at a map, Israel's not a big country, okay? It's like a little sliver, okay? And the Roman Empire by this time had conquered almost all of Europe, almost all of the Middle East, and almost all of North Africa. So this little sliver they didn't see as a massive threat as long as they stayed there, okay? Christianity by its inherent core nature is not localized, okay, as was said, okay? One of the most important commandments in the New Testament is, and not just to pastors and preachers and missionaries, but to everybody, to some extent. I'm not saying we all need to go and travel and all that, but to, is to what? Preach the gospel, spread the gospel, okay? Either you go and do it, or you find ways to help fund and support those who are going to go and do it, okay? The gospel is to go throughout the rest of the world. And that made the Roman Empire literally just want to tear their hair out. It was like, what is happening? We have this religion that denies the gods. And by the way, what were Christians called in the early church? Does anyone know? It seems so bizarre to us. What? Atheists. Because they said, you, you don't believe in gods. And Christians, yes, we do. We believe in the one true God. And they say, where is your God? Because to the Romans, it was unthinkable, okay, that you wouldn't build an idol, okay, or a statue or a picture or something to show what your God was like. And they wouldn't even do that 
even of the human nature of Christ in the early church. Okay, Obviously, we'll talk about later that very much changes in church history. But in the early days, no pictures, no depictions of God in any way, shape, or form were ever allowed. And so the Romans, it was like, you don't even have any gods. Okay, So they saw it like this atheist group that's trying to spread their atheism throughout their world as a huge threat. Okay, um, Obviously, I'm oversimplifying a lot, Okay, but for the sake of time and space, okay, that is the gist of why you have this huge tension between the Roman Empire uh, and the Christian church. Okay, Now, you see in the Bible and in the apostolic era, other than one exception that I'm going to backtrack and go over a little bit, most of these persecutions okay, were not government sanctioned. They oftentimes were ignored by the government. They sort of turned a blind eye to it. But for the most part, these were not government policies. Okay, Even in, in the book of Acts, you'll see oftentimes they go to a city and it's the local people that are getting the most upset. All right? And they, you know, persecute the apostles. And oftentimes the government sort of steps in and says, stop rioting, disperse, go your own way, so on and so forth. You had a lot of that, okay, going throughout the Roman Empire. There is sort of this, we don't like this group. We don't know what they're about. We see them as a threat. But again, until you get to about 100 AD, okay, it wasn't really government sanctioned, okay, other than in Rome itself, all right? And uh, Rome really set the precedent, okay, for what would later come, okay, throughout the rest of the um, uh, pre-Nicene era, okay? It started in Rome, and the first person to really advocate kind of heavy, heavy government-sanctioned uh, um, persecution was who? Does anyone know? Okay, Nero, okay? And Nero was, by any stretch of the imagination, I'm not just saying this because I'm biased as a Christian. You can talk to the most bi- anti-Christian historian, and everyone will agree, okay? If you want a l- nice little tidbit for your notes, okay? In short, Nero was nuts, all right? And there's just no nice way of putting it, okay? He really was just out there, okay? Um, some people say that, okay, that he was just, you know, had extreme psychological issues. Some people say he was demon-possessed. Some people say he was a precursor to the Antichrist. Some people actually say he was the Antichrist, okay? Um, I'm not going to get into all those debates other than to say he certainly was really crazy. He had some really uh, deep ethical issues, okay? Um, and he caused a lot of problems, okay? Um, all right, uh, some of the things that Nero did, and I could spend a whole session on him, and I'm not going to do that, okay? Uh, he would hold giant feasts. I mean, I'm just talking huge feasts with just an inordinate amount of food, okay? And there would be buckets all along the side, okay, so that people could do what? Okay, vomit, okay, so that you could continue to eat and continue to get drunk, okay? And it was very intentional. And they would just waste tons and tons of food, okay? He would oftentimes, okay, just pick people out, okay, men or women or boys, okay, sometimes, okay, for him to go and take into his chambers, okay, and to be with, essentially, all right? Um, He killed family members. Some of them he would literally just kick to death. Uh, He was crazy, okay? Now, something happened, and it's heavily debated on how, you know, which theory is sort of right. One thing that is clearly historical fact is that there was a huge fire in uh, Rome, okay, that uh, um, sort of launched this Christian persecution, okay? For a long time, the traditional position is that Nero himself lit that fire and basically just blamed it on the Christians, okay? Some historians would say, we're not totally sure, we don't think that the Christians lit it, okay? Um, We're not totally sure that happened. Whoever, in fact, caused the fire, one thing is clear is that Nero did not do very much to try to stop it, okay? And he was blamed for it in the coming weeks after the fire, all right? So Nero, okay, was in deep political trouble, and he needed a scapegoat, and who was already very unpopular amongst the common people in the Roman Empire? The Christians, okay? So 
he went after them big time. He said, no, 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 I didn't light this fire. I didn't have anything to do with it. It was the Christians who lit it. And not only that, I couldn't stop it because every time we'd go and try to stop it, they would just keep it going, which was all nonsense and bogus, okay? And I don't even think most Roman citizens believe that, okay? But that was sort of the narrative. And because people hated Christians, that was sort of the narrative that was accepted, okay? And that launched him into full government-sanctioned persecution of the Christian church. Now, it didn't become universal in the Roman Empire until much later, but it was in Rome, and it set the precedent, okay, for that this is something that is acceptable for an emperor to do. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. Um, some of the things uh, that Nero would do, all right, is he would uh, uh, send Christians into the Colosseum, okay, to be slaughtered by gladiators, uh, to be eaten by um, uh, uh, the animals, uh, boy, like I said, there's so much I could go into, but I have to restrain myself because of time. Uh, when, I was, when I was a teacher, I had weeks to go over some of this stuff. Um, but um, the Colosseum was a really trippy thing. Or if you know anything about the Colosseum, I mean, it was huge. It was massive. It was really the first sort of stadium-esque-like thing, all right? And to this day, sports stadiums are modeled after the Colosseum, okay? I mean, that's how big a deal it was, all right? And they had all kinds of crazy things they would do. They actually used to flood the Colosseum, and then they'd bring in boats, and they'd reenact naval battles, okay, for the, for the people, all right? They had all these trap doors, okay, that they would pull, and then a, a, a lion or, a, or a, a leopard, whatever, would be pushed up. Two gladiators would be duking it out. Have you ever seen the movie, movie Gladiator? Not all of it's accurate, but some of it is, okay? And all of a sudden, a, an animal would be right there, and then you'd have to fend that off while you're also trying to fight. And it, to the Romans, this was this super entertaining, adventurous type thing, Okay. Oftentimes, criminals would be sent into the Colosseum uh, to be killed by uh, the animals as well. And that was something that Nero did. For fun, though, Nero actually made his own little mini Colosseum, and he would invite all of his best friends over, all right, and he would dress up as an animal, all right? He'd send Christians out into his little mini Colosseum, okay, and then he'd keep people waiting. They'd be like, what is going on, all right, to kind of get the anticipation of them. And then he would run out in his animal suit, and he would chase Christians running around biting them and stuff like that, okay? He literally did this, okay? So this was a guy, okay, who had a few screws loose, okay? Um, he actually burned uh, Christians as candles, okay, in his gardens. Um, and again, uh, uh you know, it was a very, most of them, he would do it in such a way, and we'll talk about how this was also done in the Middle Ages, burning at the stake. Usually when you're around a lot of fire, as painful as that is, a lot of times you'll pass out from what? So that it's not prolonged, horrible death. Yeah, okay, you, you, you start to suffocate, okay? Uh, they would do it in such a way, okay, that oftentimes, okay, the smoke would be coming off of the person, so they actually wouldn't be inhaling the smoke, okay? So it was a very slow um, awful, horrible uh, death. If you've ever touched fire, what does your body immediately do? Okay, it snaps back. Okay, I mean that's your nerves are set up to do that. You're tied up, so your whole body is like shaking and, and contorting violently because that's what your body's trying to do. But obviously, you can't get away uh, from the fire in any way. It's a horrible, horrible way uh, uh, to die. Okay, and hundreds of Christians were um, uh, burned in that fashion. Okay, all right. <clears throat> After that. Um, from about 100 A.D. to 300 A.D., okay, many Roman emperors sort of copied Nero, not in every detail, um, but when Christians would start to become too many or Roman people were sort of complaining too much, you would have government-sanctioned local persecutions at various points in the Roman Empire. As I talked about, I think it was the first session, some people have this idea that everywhere in the Roman Empire, Christians were always under a constant uh, sort of uh, umbrella of persecution. And that's really not the case. It's a little bit exaggerated, okay? Some Christians experienced peace in various parts of the Roman Empire during this 
<clears throat> period of time uh, in certain places. But as I said in that class, there was always the what that made it not a very fun time to be a, a Christian. There was always the threat of persecution looming over. You never knew when your local governor, okay, or, or the Roman, the Caesar, okay, would say, go and persecute this, this group of, of Christians, okay? Um, really quickly, some of the ways that Christians died, many were crucified. Uh, tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to die in the same way uh, as Jesus. Uh, as I said, many were taken into the Colosseum. Uh, they were slaughtered by gladiators. Many of them were eaten by animals. Uh, many of them were impaled. Many of them were burned alive. Many of them were skinned alive. One of the most heinous things that the Roman Empire did that I alluded to in one of the other classes is they would burn uh, down uh, uh, hot molten metals, okay, of different types, all right, and they would literally pour it into Christians' ears, their eyes, their mouths, other places, okay? I mean, really, really awful uh, forms of, uh, of persecution, okay? Um, now, as I said in one of my classes... <coughs> One second. A lot of Christians didn't make it to the last leg, okay? And they were known as the lapsed, all right? And that was a big problem for the church. Um, for the most part, I think the church did an okay job of this. There were certain parts of the Roman Empire where I think the church was pretty harsh, okay, in dealing with a, a sort of church discipline for the lapsed. But for the most part, the Christian church would ask, ask things like, did you deny Christ right away? You know what I mean? Did you deny as you were being persecuted? And as I said about not over-romanticizing this period of time, it's a lot more gray, and history always is. And I used to tell my students that all the time, okay? Anytime you have a historian who makes everything very black and white, very cut and dry, it's probably somebody who's not read a lot of history, okay? It's always just a lot more messy and gray than we sort of like to think of it, okay? You had some Christians who would deny Christ, okay, as they were being eaten by an animal, and at that point, it's really too late, okay? So, I mean, they're sort of the lapse, but they're sort of not. And there was questions, do we honor them as martyrs? I mean, they were killed for their faith, essentially, but they, they denied at the last minute. I mean, it was not as clear-cut as sometimes uh, we like to think of it. Does that make sense? Okay. Having said that, there were, okay, a, a minority of the Christian population, okay, who made it all the way until the last leg in spite of sometimes just horrific, horrific persecution, okay? And these were known as the what? What's that? Okay, the martyrs of the early faith, all right? And these guys became what? Because they made it all the way to the end. What's that? Saints, yeah, okay? At this point, I, and that, that's a perfect answer, and that's what they became known as, and it became a big problem. We'll talk about that. But at this point, I would say, they didn't use this word, but to kind of make it more relevant to our day and age, they were like the heroes of that day. And I mean that, okay? Um, not just the way we tend to look at past Christians as heroes, but I'm talking about within the church, they were like the rock stars. I mean, they were like, I mean, that's who people in the church were talking about, okay, and idolizing and saying, you know, that I want to be like that person, right? Which obviously was a great thing because it was inspiration. But later on, just so I'm going to kind of put this on the shelf, but later on in church history, that becomes a big problem because these heroes start to become what? Yeah, they become, okay, overly um, exalted and even uh, uh, worshipped and deified to some extent. And we'll talk about that during the Middle Ages. So keep that in the back burner, okay, of, of your mind. Uh, for now, it's not a terrible thing, but it sort of plants the seeds for what later um, become, becomes uh, kind of the cult of the saints in the Middle Ages, okay? All right. And you can kind of see why these people were so exalted. I mean, they made it to the end. They did what most Christians couldn't do, okay? And so they were just seen as... I mean, almost like borderline angelic type figures in the early church, okay? All right, um, so we kind of, uh, if you want to turn the page, we kind of went over the martyrs and the lapsed. 
There's so many great people from this period of time that I could focus on, but again, time does not permit it. So I'm going to kind of talk briefly, and it will be too briefly, unfortunately, about one hero of the faith who is just an awesome and amazing uh, Christian hero, okay? Uh, and her name is Perpetua, okay? So that's, I'm kind of on number three uh, under the um, uh, intense Roman persecution. <clears throat> what makes Perpetua so unique is not because she was like the only female martyr of this time. What makes her so unique is that most female martyrs we don't tend to know a lot about. Okay? We know that a lot of Christian women were killed for their faith in this period of time, a lot. Okay? Um, but because of sort of the kind of sexism of the ancient world that even spilled over into the church to some extent, we've got to be honest about that. We might not like to talk about that, but the church was not completely um, you know, uh, cured of that right off the bat. Okay? Um, most uh, women okay, did not write okay, about their experiences. Oftentimes they were not interviewed okay, by pastors and elders and stuff nearly as much uh, as the men. Okay? What makes Perpetua different is that we know a lot about her. Okay? She wrote about her experiences. Her uh, writings have been preserved for us, all right? and they are extremely inspirational. So she's sort of kind of like um, just sort of a, a great example of not only martyrs in general, okay, but the fact that so many women uh, uh, died for their faith in the early church. Okay? <clears throat> She's also a reminder okay, of the fact, all right, um, most Christians throughout Christian history okay, have been what? It's a fact. Women. Okay? Women have outnumbered men in the church by quite a bit. Okay? At certain periods of the church, not by much. Okay? Other periods, almost by two to one. Okay, and that is just a fact of history, okay? And it's something to keep in mind as we go through church history because most of the sort of recorded heroes of the faith, okay, are what? Men, okay? And the reason is, for the reasons that I've kind of talked about, okay, there was still a lot of sexism in the church, okay? Um, and also because uh, um, men, okay, are um, uh, given the leadership positions in the church, oftentimes they tended to be uh, overly emphasized, okay? And so if it seems like I'm going over too many men, okay, heroes, uh, bear in mind I'm going to go over quite a bit of, of uh, women heroes, but also just a lot, we have a lot more information about the, the men. Does that make sense? Okay, but I wanted to start with Perpetua as a reminder, okay, of that really, okay, uh, there's been a lot more women in the church um, uh, than there has been men, okay? And there was every bit as many uh, uh, female martyrs in the early church as men, if not more, okay? <clears throat> All right, so Perpetua was a very young Christian, both in age and in her actual spiritual faith. She had not been a Christian for long. Something else that makes her so remarkable. We're not talking about a woman who had been walking with the Lord for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, okay? She had only known the Lord for a few years, all right? Uh, and our, to show the maturity, okay, that she had uh, is, is really, really remarkable. She had just given birth to a son. She was literally nursing her son in a Roman prison before she actually was sent out into uh, uh, the Colosseum to die, okay? Uh, and she was willing to do that. She was willing to, to give up her relationship with her son for uh, uh, Christ, okay? Um, she had prayed like crazy. I mean, just prayed and prayed and prayed that God... Uh, would protect her son, that the Romans would not threaten her son, because again, she was fearful, as I talked about earlier. Okay, what was the fear? That if they threatened her son, she might what? She might herself not make it to the end, okay? Sort of out of just like, you know, the sort of motherly instinct. And her prayers were answered. The Romans granted that her son could go to her mother and her brother, okay? But still, what a remarkable thing. She was willing to give up uh, um, uh, taking care of her son for the rest of her life uh, for Christ, all right? 
in her writings. Now, some of the stuff as Reformed Christians, if you do read it, and I encourage you to read it, it's pretty inspirational stuff. Some of it might be like, this doesn't sound very Reformed. Again, bear in mind, we're talking about the early church. Okay, the church itself is in its infancy stage. Okay, a lot of development needed to happen. Okay, not every church had all of the Bible, and she herself was a very young Christian. Okay, so she talks a lot about visions and different things like that that might make some Reformed Christians pretty uncomfortable. She never says anything that's blatantly unbiblical or or unorthodox or anything like that, okay? She believed in these things, as did a lot of uh, early uh, 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 Christians, okay? Um, She was sent out into the Colosseum, okay, where she was flogged, okay, by Roman soldiers, just in the way that we talked about how Jesus uh, was flogged. Uh, Excuse me, not by Roman soldiers. She was flogged by gladiators, okay? She and a number of other Christians were flogged by gladiators, okay? And as I talked about the Roman soldiers, you had to be a certain qualification in order to do the flogging, okay? And gladiators, by and large, were what type of people? Buff, strong, yeah, gangster type, okay? Uh, yeah, really tough uh, uh, guys, Ath- very athletic. You couldn't be a gladiator unless you fit a certain mold, okay? So again, horrible, horrible experience of flogging. At that point, again, remember the Romans loved to give people as much pain as possible. They didn't want you to pass out. They didn't want you to go in shock. So they oftentimes would do it right up to that sort of borderline, and then they kind of give you a rest, and then it would sort of kind of go up again, right? After she was flogged, along with a number of other Christians, they let out the beasts on her, okay? And uh, uh, a lot of them were mauled by the beasts. Some of them were killed, but not all of them. And she was one of the people who was not killed. They sort of pulled the beasts back, okay, at which point uh, they did bring the gladiators back, okay, and she and many others had their throats uh, slit, Okay, um, so again, stuck to her faith to the very last second, no matter what. I mean, the threat of not having her being able to raise her son, the threat of all this pain and agony. And if you read her writings, and if you can get past some of the stuff that might seem a little overly charismatic for us Reformed folks, if you can get past that, what makes Perpetua so cool is you get from her writings, this is a woman who didn't just love Jesus, who was not just really into Jesus. This was a woman that was absolutely positively obsessed with Jesus. I mean, he made her entire life. I and mean, that was her focus. That was her everything. And it's so evident from her writings. And it's really, really remarkable stuff. Okay, So again, I encourage you to read about uh, Perpetua if you ever get, get the chance. Okay. All right, moving quickly, let's go into early, um, some heretical groups. <clears throat> I'm going to spend a lot of time on each of these. Most of these were pretty small groups, caused problems. Um, many of these I talked about when we went over the Trinity class. But I do want to spend a lot of time on Gnosticism, because Gnosticism was a large group and that caused a lot of problems okay, for the early church. Okay? So I want to spend a fair amount of time on Gnosticism. Now, one thing I want to say about the church. Okay? Sometimes as Reformed Christians, 2,000 years, we have the advantage of Martin Luther, Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, Bavink. We have these huge giants that we can stand on their shoulders And sometimes we act like people in the early church should have as good a theology as us. Does that make sense? And that's really not a very fair expectation, okay? So again, sometimes if you read people from the early church, don't be surprised if they say things that's like, "Eh, I'm not so sure about that. It's not right to judge them the same level as we would judge a theologian today who might be saying some things that are not totally right on. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, the church, and remember, if the church had mostly been you know, Jewish at first, okay, with just purely Jewish leaders. Now, I know it was with the apostles, but after about 100 AD, okay, there probably would have been a little bit more of a foundation there. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of the Jews in the early days of the church, what? 
How did they respond to the gospel? For the most part, not down to the last man. They rejected it, okay? And so Christianity mostly came to the Gentiles. And a lot of times it was heavily persecuted Gentiles. So a lot of times you didn't always have time to go back and study the Bible as much as you would like, go back to the, you know, the Jewish roots, okay? And people were bringing a lot of baggage, a lot of Greek and Roman philosophical concepts. And so it was messy in the early days of the church, okay? What I do want to say this, all right? Despite that messiness, all right? If you can sort of, you know, take away some of the gunk at the core of all sound Christian teachers, okay? All of the basic essential teachings of the faith are there. Does that make sense? Okay, they're there. And that's a really powerful, cool thing. They needed to, to sort of work out some issues and stuff. Let me give you an example since we did the Trinity class, okay? In the early days of the church, and you can write this down, everyone worshiped the Father, they worshiped the Son, and they worshiped the Holy Spirit. They believed that all three were God, okay, and that they were all not exactly the same. That was about it as far as doctrine, okay? That's not a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity. Hadn't answered every objection, hadn't gone over every passage, hadn't put it all together, hadn't come up with all the terminology that we have today, okay? But the basic core was there. Does that make sense? Okay, and that was the case really with all doctrines. And as much as heresy is such a horrible thing and it causes a lot of problems, how does God oftentimes use heresy in a very positive way for the church? What's that? Excellent. Okay, excellent. He uses it to sharpen the church. Okay, I'll give you an example. Okay, inerrancy was something that the church just always accepted. It wasn't, it wasn't really talked about that much. Everybody who claimed to be a Christian believed that the Bible didn't have any mistakes in it. Okay, but you'll hear people, I hear this all the time today. Inerrancy wasn't, it didn't even come around until the 20th century. What a load of bunk. Okay, I can show you quote after quote after quote after quote. That's a load of baloney. But the fully developed doctrine of inerrancy didn't come about until the 20th century because it wasn't all out attacked until then. Does that make sense? Okay. And we had to sharpen a lot of things and we had to make a lot of qualifications saying, okay, past people said this, that probably wasn't totally accurate. We probably go more in this direction. Does that make sense? Okay. Even things on like sexuality. Okay. The church has always believed, okay, that uh, marriage is to be between uh, one man and one woman. Okay. And that was really pretty much just this very simplistic doctrine of the church. Okay. People who ha were homosexual in orientation, okay, were dealt with very, very harshly. Does that make sense? Okay. Today, it's not the true church. It's not changed its core position. Does that make sense? We still believe that, but we're becoming much more nuanced, okay, in how we approach uh, that, that uh, difficult question. Does that make sense? Okay. These are all things that sort of heresy sort of does. It sort of defines and, and sharpens the church's doctrine, okay. And Gnosticism really did that, okay, because Gnosticism write this down, was by far and away the largest heretical group, okay, in the early church. <clears throat> I'm going to quickly go over its teachings. I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to try and get through as quickly as I can. Um, as bizarre as it sounds to us, Gnosticism really appealed to professing Christians in the early church because it was seen, and as crazy as this is going to sound once I go over these teachings, it was seen as the more intellectually viable position. Orthodox Christianity was seen as, it's a little out there. Gnosticism, ooh, that had pedigree. And the reason is because it sounded so what? Why did people take it so seriously intellectually? Thank you, excellent. It was Hellenistic. It was so Greek. As crazy and weird as some of their teachings are, it was Greek, okay? And we something that we should remember. In our day and age, when people mock Christianity, most of the time they're mocking it because they're saying it doesn't sound like the reigning paradigm of our day. Whether it be in America or Christians in parts of Africa, they, do, they deal with different issues. But the most often way that the church is mocked intellectually is they say, it sounds so bizarre, it sounds so wacky. And what they mean is it sounds so different from the reigning paradigm of our culture, okay? 
One thing I always find interesting, if you ever tell a child, and I remember teaching my kids, okay, when they were very little, uh, or sometimes in, in the Christian school that I went to, if they hadn't been exposed to a lot of different views on science and stuff, if you just tell them the theory of evolution, without how popular it is, without all this quote-unquote scientific backing, if they've not been raised in it and stuff, the response is always hilarious, okay? I'm, I'm telling you, if you've ever done this to a young child, they'll always be like, Wait, what? People believe that? Okay, I mean, like, there was this energy, okay? Uh, John and I were talking about this the other, the other, yesterday. There was this energy, and all of a sudden it went boom. Everything came into existence, and then there was this goo, and that gave rise to animals, and all the other animals gave rise to other animals, and all those animals gave rise to people. What does that sound like if you don't have all the American baggage that we come to it with? What does that sound like? It sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like a myth. Okay, now again, I can say, being raised in a very liberal Protestant home where my dad, evolution, explained almost everything. I, it just, it never would have occurred to me to question it. Okay, Christianity, Adam and Eve, and, and the garden, that sounded like a fairy tale to me. I still, to this day, I'll be honest with you. I believe it with all my heart, but I struggle with it, because that's just not what I was raised in. All right? But again, you have to remember, okay, how mythical other paradigms can sound uh, when you're not being exposed to them. Okay? And that was the case with Gnosticism. Okay? All right, so the core element of Gnosticism is it was, uh, had what was known as dualism. And this is where the Greek element came through. Okay? Greek philosophy, you had lots of different versions of it. It was applied to polytheism, and it was applied by different philosophers and religious leaders in different ways. But at the core, the Roman Empire, which had adopted Greek philosophy after it conquered the Greek Empire, was what was known as dualistic. Does anyone know what I mean when I say dualism? Yes, okay, you have a sharp dichotomy between the spirit realm okay, and the physical realm. One is good, one is very bad. Which one is good, which one is not so good? Spirit. Spirit is good, physical, bad. Okay. They called the spirit realm the pleroma and they called the physical realm the kinoma. Okay. Within the spiritual realm, you had okay, what they called a chain of being. Okay, at the top, okay, was sort of like God, okay, or they had different names for it. They had the one, or the monad, or sometimes they would call it the abyss, or the abuso, okay. It wasn't God in the Christian sense by any stretch. It was sort of this sort of kind of nebulous spiritual force. Some said it had a mind, some were like, no, not so much. There was disagreement, but there was sort of at the top was sort of this God-like figure, okay. And then from God, okay, came all these what they called emanations, okay? And an emanation would lead to, okay, what they called an aeon. Emanation is the process of, the, of an aeon coming from a previous aeon, okay? And the aeon is sort of the result, okay? It's like, okay, God, what's that? It does sound a lot like evolution. A very, and a lot of people have noticed that, absolutely. The first aeon is one step removed from the abuso, okay, so to speak. He's pretty darn close, but he's removed, okay? He's not exactly the same. He's lesser, all right? And then you get another emanation and another and another and another, and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. This was a very common concept in Greek philosophy, okay? The Gnostics took it to kind of a bizarre step further. At the bottom of, okay, all of these aeons, you get what is known as Sophia, now, Sophia in most Greek philosophy referred to what? Does anybody know? Wisdom. And was generally seen as a good concept, okay? The Gnostics took Sophia kind of in a weird direction, okay? 
Sophia, because she's so far removed, okay, from the original um, uh, god-like figure, she very much has a mind and a personality and will and all this stuff, okay? And Sophia commits a big no-no, okay? She falls in love with... Who are you going to fall in love with if you're, if you're an Anne? Who's like the top dog? Okay? Sophia falls in love with the Abuso. Can't do that. Very bad, okay? So this just throws everything out of whack, Okay? And because of this falling in love with the Aboso, that creates a spark of light. And what exactly was meant by that, the Gnostics, I don't really know. They're not very specific, okay? So that causes this spark of light. And where does that spark of light go to? Okay, very good, okay? That goes over here. And all of a sudden, this kenoma, this is sort of this physical matter out there, just sort of existing, not really doing anything, all of a sudden, okay, it's put into action. It's put into power. And that leads, okay, to the key being of the um, kinoma, which is the what? Anyone know anything about the Gnostics? Starts with a D. Okay. The Demiurge. The Demiurge is bad, okay? And the primary reason he is bad is because he's what? Physical, okay? And he likes the physical realm. And he wants to put the physical realm together. So what he does is he creates, okay, the universe. But by create, they don't mean in the biblical sense. They mean in the Greek sense, okay? What does he do with all this matter? He doesn't create it ex nihilo. He does what? Organize. Organizes it. Excellent. He puts it all together. And that's how the universe came into being. And so is the universe a good thing or a bad thing, okay, in Gnosticism? Bad thing. And not in the Christian sense that it's fallen. It's what? It's inherently bad. It's by its very nature bad and not redeemable. It needs to be gotten rid of or you need to remove yourself from that, Okay. All right. <clears throat> Many Gnostics associated the Demiurge with who in the Bible? Some, yes, some devil. That's actually a really good answer. But even more, what should be shocking to us as Christians is who? No, not Christ. No. The God of the Old Testament. Okay. The God of the Old Testament, okay, not for all Gnostics, but for some, okay, was the Demiurge. And he was sort of kind of almost one with Satan in some sense. And I am oversimplifying it. There was all these different strands of Gnosticism, so on and so forth. That's the basic essence, okay? The good God, the father of the New Testament, is the Abuso, okay? Who is Christ? This first aeon. So is he equal with God? No, but he's still pretty high up there, okay? Gnostics, very similar to Mormons today, they would say to Christians all the time, why do you get so upset with us? We believe in Jesus, we believe that he's a God. We, 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 he's in the name of our religion. We, we have a highly exalted view of him. Why does it matter so much to you? And we say, this is a big difference, okay? We don't worship an aeon. We don't worship a created being, okay? We worship God. And if Jesus isn't God, you shouldn't be worshiping him. And it makes a big difference, okay? And you had a similar argument going on in early Gnosticism, okay? Next aeon, okay, is the Holy Spirit, okay? All right, I'll go ahead and stop there. Okay, please let me know next week. That's where I left off, okay? And you can see they had a kind of a doctrine of a trinity, but it certainly isn't the biblical doctrine, okay? So we'll pick up there uh, next week. All right, thanks, you guys. Yeah.